0: Welcome to the Dark Wales Tours podcast with me, Matthew Rose. In the middle of the night, you are awoken by the sound of scratching at the window. At first, you think it is a tree branch outside, but there is no wind tonight. The scratching sound changes. It is opening the window. The creature enters the room, scanning the darkness its glowing red eyes fix on you. Suddenly, the creature is atop of you, bearing down, its decomposing face burying itself into your neck, its teeth ripping a hole and draining your blood. You have been visited by a vampire. For centuries, we have been told stories of the undead, rising from their graves and attacking innocent people, draining them of their blood and life, But have such things been experienced here in Wales? It seems it may very well be the case that they have. Every culture in the world has had its own version of the vampire. For the majority of history, the vampire has been very different to the aristocratic count in his formal attire roaming the corridors of a ruined castle that we have become used to. The ancient Greeks had the myth of Lamia a young beautiful princess from Libya who in some versions was the daughter or granddaughter of the sea god Poseidon. As was the case with most young beautiful women in Greek mythology Lamia was spotted by the king of the gods Zeus. Zeus appeared to Lamia and wooed her making her his lover. However Zeus's wife the goddess Hera discovered the affair and was furious. As she did with most of Zeus's lovers, Hera punished Lamia by having all her children by Zeus killed and drove Lamia from Greece. The grief-stricken Lamia vowed vengeance. She became a creature who would steal away children to feast on their blood. This Greek myth shares similarities with the biblical story of the first woman who went on to become a creature of nightmare, Lilith. Lilith was made at the same time as Adam and from the same material. Though Lilith refused to be subordinate to Adam and was cast out of the Garden of Eden. Exiled to the earth, Lilith became a hideous monster who would fly around at night, taking young children and drinking their blood. For many cultures around the world, The creature that feeds on the blood of the living is a reanimated corpse in various stages of decomposition. For centuries, vampires, witches and werewolves have been blamed for bringing bad luck, famine and plague. Before the advances of science, the supernatural was the only logical explanation for when things went wrong. The fear of the vampire also allowed the church to convert and control the peasantry, as they said that only unbaptized and sinful people would be in danger of becoming vampires, and that the church was the only way to protect yourself and your family from these nocturnal creatures. As we have seen in previous episodes, Welsh folklore did not distinguish between witches, vampires, demons, and other supernatural beings. The Grach Ribbon, for example, can be seen as being all of the above. She is a witch who prowls the night. She is a vampire who steals the life force of the innocent. And she is a demon who comes from the depths of hell to cause mayhem and misery. This seemingly indistinguishing of the supernatural creatures that roam this country can make it very difficult to categorize them. What the Welsh do have is an idea that vampires may not be reanimated corpses but may be evil spirits who can, bizarrely it seems, have the ability to possess everyday furniture and items in order to steal the blood of those who use them. For example, in the early 18th century a minister was staying at a farmhouse in Glamorgan. He awoke early one morning and sat in the wooden chair on the other side of the room in order to go over the sermon he was to deliver that day. Some time passed and the minister started to notice his hand was bleeding. As he got out of the chair to tend to his wounded hand, the blood started pouring out. The minister rushed to bandage it up and stop the flow of blood. He realized he actually felt no pain and could not work out exactly where the wound was. When he had stopped the blood from pouring out and had cleaned his hand, he noticed clear teeth marks at the point where the blood was. He reported this incident to the landlord who did not appear that surprised by it. He told the minister that a number of people had had similar incidents when they sat in the chair bite marks, scratches, and other injuries. The landlord had come to the conclusion that the chair must, of course, be a vampire chair. However, it seems that the vampire spirit in the chair was not alone. A few days later, the minister awoke with a terrible pain in his side. He likened it to being bitten by an animal. When he looked, he could see that his side now bore teeth marks very similar to his hand. The minister concluded that not only was there a vampire chair in the room but there was also a vampire bed as well. He informed the landlord that people would continue to be bitten and have their blood drained unless he got rid of both the chair and the bed. The landlord reluctantly agreed to this but could not bring himself to destroy such fine looking antiques so instead he sold the chair and sold the bed. The attacks in the farmhouse stopped as soon as the furniture was removed from the room. This belief that furniture can be vampiric was not just confined to the remote farmhouses of Wales. In 1840 there was an advert in a national newspaper in Wales which listed an Elizabethan chair for sale. A chair that the advert claimed was a vampire chair and had caused several people to lose blood while sitting in it. Could it be the same chair that once sat in the farmhouse in Morgan? Or could there be multiple vampiric chairs dotted around the country, patiently waiting for the next victim to take a seat? Always be careful when sitting in antique chairs. There could be a vampire spirit waiting to drain your blood. The vampire bed of Glamorgan however was not the only such bed spoken of in Wales. In Cardiff there was a bed from the reign of King James I, which caused untold misery to a Cardiff family. The family purchased a four-poster bed to put in their best bedroom. The bed they chose was a grand ornately decorated bed which was sold far more cheaply than the bed was worth. The seller seemed to just want to get rid of the bed. Not long after the family brought the bed home, they had to have some work done in the parents' bedroom, so they were forced to sleep in the newly acquired bed. The husband was away on business at the time, and the wife slept in the bed with their four-month-old child. On the first night they slept in the bed, the child was restless and would not sleep. On the second night, when the child was set on the bed, it began to cry and scream violently. The mother, becoming worried, consulted a doctor who prescribed remedies to help the child sleep. That night, the child eventually went to sleep, but was still uneasy about the bed. On the fourth night, the child screamed in pain. The mother, not being able to calm it down, picked it up and as then she noticed a large mark on the child's neck with blood oozing out. Moments later, tragically, the poor child was dead. The doctor returned and examined the child. He was unable to give any reason behind the mark and said it was like something had been sucking the blood out of the child's neck. It was not just the poor, unfortunate child that was attacked by this seemingly vampiric bed. After a few years, the couple had another child, and one night, the husband decided he would sleep in the grand bed to guarantee a night's sleep undisturbed by the crying of a newborn baby. During the night, he was awakened to the feeling of something clawing at his throat. As he lay there, he concluded that he must have had a nightmare and put it to the back of his mind. The next night, however, he felt the same thing again only this time it felt more forceful. He decided he would not tell his wife in fear of scaring her and bringing back painful memories of their first child. On the third night, he felt as if he was suffocating and struggled to get out of the bed. When he finally managed to force his body to get up, he went to the mirror and saw on his neck there was a mark with blood pouring out. He immediately went to the bathroom and managed to stop the bleeding the next morning he told a friend what was happening who offered to stay in the bed to see if the same thing happened to him which indeed it did the friend awoke to the feeling of blood pouring out of his neck he managed to get out of the bed in time and bandaged up the wound the friend then went to a wise old man he knew who told him that the bed was indeed a vampire bed And it would keep draining the blood from anyone who slept in it. The family then realized why the seller had sold it so cheaply. The vampire bed, although outwardly beautiful, harbored a dark and deadly secret, it seems. Even in the 21st century, we are still being reminded of our ancestors' belief and fear of the vampire. In September, 2013 archaeologists digging in Bulgaria found a skeleton of a man dating from the 13th or 14th century with an iron stake driven through his heart and with bronze coins placed inside his mouth it is unknown if this was done to him during life or after death by concerned family members who wanted to prevent him from rising from the grave however the dates do suggest he could have been A victim of the Black Death and maybe could have been blamed for the spread and therefore the locals tried to stop the disease by killing the vampire responsible. Two years previously archaeologists digging on the Black Sea found two skeletons that have been treated in a similar way but these dated from the 8th or 9th centuries which shows that this belief in vampires has existed for centuries. Eastern Europe seems to be where the majority of the vampire myths have originated which may be why it was chosen as the home of the most famous vampire of literature stage and screen, Dracula. As Christianity spread throughout Europe the vampire became the symbol of what would happen if you went against God and disobeyed the church. It was said that children born out of wedlock. People who led sinful lives and people who committed suicide could all be eligible to become vampires after death. Some vampires are not the corpses of humans. Sometimes a vampire can be a monstrous creature that is far from human. The most famous example of this is the chupacabra of Latin America. The chupacabra literally translated as goat sucker has been described as a bipedal creature four or five feet tall with large eyes, spikes on its back and very long sharp claws. It is known to attack livestock leaving puncture holes in the neck draining the poor animal of its blood. The first recorded sighting of a chupacabra came from Puerto Rico in 1995. A lady reported seeing a large, hairless creature with blazing red eyes roaming the area. This mysterious creature was then blamed for the numerous attacks on livestock, attacks which had left teeth marks on the neck and seemingly had left the livestock drained of their blood. News of this strange vampire-like creature traveled fast and soon the media got hold of it. The Puerto Rican comedian, Silvero. Perez was the first one to coin the name Chupacabra when discussing the recent animal attacks. It wasn't long until similar attacks and sightings of these creatures began to be reported all over South America. As more and more people started to claim to have seen the Chupacabra, some of them turned to a new medium to report the encounter, the internet. Once online, the tale of the Chupacabra took on a life of its own. Descriptions began to change. The origin of the animal began to take on strange shapes, with people even claiming that the Chupacabra was in fact an alien life form. Due to the anti-US feeling in Puerto Rico, some even said that the Chupacabra had been a US scientific experiment that had been released in Puerto Rico on purpose. The legend once again grabbed the immediate attention when bodies began to appear that looked exactly like the Chupacabra. With many different theories being proposed, it was down to the biologists to find out exactly what these strange creatures were. After simple DNA analysis, it turns out the so-called Chupacabra bodies were in fact the corpses of wild dogs, coyotes and even raccoons. The reason that they weren't immediately identifiable was due to the fact they were affected with mange. Mange is a condition where itch-inducing mites get under the skin and cause the affected animal to lose its hair and bite at itself incessantly. The livestock that had been attacked were also examined and were found not to have been drained of their blood, but the blood had seeped to the lowest part of the body and it had coagulated and thickened giving the impression that the animal had been drained of blood. One explanation for the original sighting was that the lady had been confused and influenced by Hollywood. A few months before the first sighting, the film Species was released. The movie features a monster that closely resembles what the Chupacabra would become known to look like. What also adds credence to this is that the movie was partly filmed in Puerto Rico so maybe the lady identified landmarks in the film and thought it was happening in real life. The persistence of the Chupacabra myth and the fact that there are still reported sightings of it might however suggest that these explanations are too simplistic and might not explain all of the sightings. There could be a fierce creature roaming the countryside, feeding off the blood of innocent livestock. Or could it be just another example of how the internet refuses to let facts get in the way of a good urban legend? Another legendary vampire that caught the attention of the mass media was the Highgate vampire in England. This was due more to the two men that vowed to kill it rather than the vampire itself. In the 1970s, reports were coming in that a mysterious figure had been seen roaming the grounds of the Highgate Cemetery in London. This figure only came out at night and was often described as wearing old-fashioned clothes. The cemetery in North London was the it place for burying relatives of wealthy Londoners in the 19th century. The graveyard is the final resting place for the rich and famous, including German philosopher Karl Marx and novelist George Eliot. By the end of the Second World War, the popularity of the cemetery was in decline. It was neglected, run down, and overgrown. This did, however, make it the perfect filming location for horror movies such as From Beyond the Grave and Taste the Blood of Dracula in the early 1970s. The first reports of a vampire lurking among the graves came in 1969, when two people reported seeing a figure rise from one of the graves in the dead of night. Luckily, these two people told a well-known occultist and self-professed vampire hunter, David Farrand. Farrand then wasted no time in gathering his equipment a wooden cross and a stake, and set out to Highgate Cemetery in order to stop the vampire rising again. Farrant was not the only vampire hunter who had heard of the so-called vampire. Sean Manchester had also taken it upon himself to seek out the Highgate vampire and to stop its nightly roaming. As the two vampire hunters started to talk to the media, a bitter feud erupted as both said they would be the one who would kill the vampire once and for all. It was this feud that the media and the public latched onto. People became fascinated in hearing the latest between the two men. When David Farrand got himself arrested for attempting to climb over the Highgate Cemetery wall, Sean Manchester wasted no time in calling his rival a criminal. A few days after this, Manchester went to Highgate and claimed to have opened up a coffin in one of the tombs. He was about to drive a stake through the heart of the corpse when a friend stopped him and instead left garlic and incense inside the tomb to prevent the vampire rising out of its grave. David Farrand appeared in court but was found not guilty and released. Things only became more heated and then in 1973, Both parties advertised that they would have a magician's duel on Friday the 13th of April at Parliament Hill. There were posters put all around the city advertising the event. An event that never happened. Neither Farrant nor Manchester showed up. In August of the same year, a lady's century-old remains were discovered and desecrated near her former resting place. It was also in 1973 when Sean Manchester claimed to have driven a stake through the Vampire's heart in the nearby House of Dracula in Crouch End, thus ending the Highgate Vampire's Reign of Terror. Farrant was jailed in 1974 for damaging memorials and interfering with dead remains in Highgate Cemetery. Vandalism and desecration which he insisted was not caused by him but had in fact been caused by Satanists performing a ritual. Farrant and Manchester wrote and spoke repeatedly about the Highgate vampire over the years, each highlighting his own role to the exclusion of the other. Every time, each man tried to control the narrative around the event, resulting in the ongoing animosity and rivalry between the two. Their feud continued for decades, Every time the insults and vindictiveness getting worse and worse. David Farron died in 2019 and Sean Manchester refuses to speak to the media regarding the Highgate vampire, only stating that if the need for him to return to the cemetery ever arose, then he would, but this time in secret. Not all, it seems, who attempt to stop the undead professional vampire hunters. There is a story from England of a case where two brothers hunted down and killed a supposed vampire that was feeding off their sister. The story centers around a house in Cumberland called Crogling Grange. Crogling Grange had been the home of the Fisher family but when the family started to outgrow the house They moved and rented out the Grange to a sister and her two brothers, Amelia, Edward and Michael Cranswell. The Cranswell siblings settled into village life with great ease, becoming very popular within the village. One night, however, Amelia was having trouble sleeping. It was a very hot, muggy night, and needing some air, Amelia went to the window and opened the shutters. Looking out into the darkness, Amelia suddenly saw two red points of light seemingly hovering over the graves in the nearby churchyard. At first, she was captivated by them, but the more she looked, the more she felt something was not quite right. As she was about to close the shutters, the red lights darted towards the Grange. Amelia was then able to see that the lights were in fact a pair of red eyes, and the figure whose eyes they belonged to was moving at an incredible speed. In a state of panic, Amelia slammed the shutters and locked them, turning around to head to the door. Suddenly, she heard a scratching on the shutters. The creature was outside the window. Then she realised the sound had changed. The creature was unpicking the lock. Before she could call out for help, the creature had entered the room. It moved with speed and was soon upon her. The face was fierce, decomposing, and made the whole room smell of decay. The brothers were awoken from their sleep by the sound of their sister's high-pitched scream. Rushing to their sister's room, they found that the door was locked. Knowing that something was wrong, the brothers broke down the door. What they saw horrified them. Amelia was on the bed, her face frozen in a state of terror, blood pouring from a wound in her neck but she was still alive. Michael rushed to stop the flow of blood while Edward went to the window just in time to see a shadowy figure return to the churchyard. It seems they had arrived just in time. They were able to save their sister's life and took her to Switzerland in order to recuperate in the fresh mounting air. After a long summer abroad, the siblings returned to Croglin Grange in order to confront and destroy the creature. One winter's night, Amelia was in her room staring out of the window when she saw the red eyes staring back. The creature moved with unnatural speed and before Amelia could react, it was in the room once again. Michael and Edward then sprang from their hiding place with drawn pistols, both firing at the creature. One of the bullets hit the creature's leg as it fled the Grange. The brothers then decided to not follow the vampiric creature into its lair until dawn. Upon daybreak, Michael, Edward and some locals searched the churchyard for any sign of disturbance. All of the graves looked intact. They were about to leave when they noticed that the crypt door was open. Upon entering the crypt, the group saw human bones and broken coffins scattered all around the room the only coffin that was undisturbed was sitting in the corner. The group forced the lid open. The corpse inside had fresh blood around the mouth and a fresh bullet wound in its leg. After seeing the bullet wound the Cranswell brothers and the locals carried out the coffin to the churchyard and burned it to ashes. The vampire let out a cry and was never seen again. When these events were meant to have occurred No one really knows for certain. The story first appeared in the 1890s in Story of My Life by Augustus Hare. In the 1920s, Charles G. Harper decided he would try to discover the truth about the tale. When he visited Cumberland, he could not find any Grange by the name Croglin. He did find a Croglin High Hall and a Croglin Low Hall And decided that the story was based on Croglin Low Hall. However there hadn't been a church nearby for some centuries which could imply that the story is actually centuries old or perhaps another urban myth from years gone by. From film, tv, theater shows to books and games it seems our interest in the vampire is an eternal one, and this monster, that is as old as the human race, refuses to die. Like the ghost, the vampire may give us proof that there is life after death. Here in Wales, the stories of vampires in the traditional sense may not be as prolific as many other parts of the world, but it is certainly evidence that phenomena such as vampiric furniture may have existed and perhaps terrifyingly is still amongst us. Antique chairs and beds on display at various museums, historic buildings and old farmhouses may have more to them than what first meets the eye. What if dark secrets are not just connected to antique beds and chairs? Can such dark forces inhabit other seemingly ordinary objects something to keep in mind perhaps as you scan your surroundings is everything as it seems are the inanimate objects around you harboring secrets of their own if you have your own story to share on this or any of the other topics in our podcasts then please email us on dark at hotmail.com thank you for joining me ...for this episode of the Dark Wales Tours podcast. Please be sure to share and like this episode... ...and also follow us on our Instagram, Facebook and Twitter pages. Please be sure to listen to the other episodes of this podcast. Until next time, diolch yn Thank you very much. The Dark Wales Tours podcast is produced and delivered by Matthew Rose and Luke Alcock, owners of Dark Wales Tours.